0: Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that anytime you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m.
1: Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is going to come from the book of of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. If you're following along in your pew Bible, that is page 1084. 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Good morning and welcome to the great church. It is absolutely fantastic to be able to be here in God's presence to worship him today. Uh, And uh, if you are one of our regular members or our regular uh, guests... Uh, You probably know from the announcements that today is a special day, the second day of our uh, weekend revival gospel meeting. And uh, so uh, you're excited about it, I know. Those of you that were here yesterday for the two sessions were very well blessed. And those of you that were not here yesterday, it was definitely your loss. Uh, You missed some wonderful lessons. And, And so those that are here maybe as our guests today, we want to welcome you. And let you know you have come on a special day. We have a very special guest speaker today, a very dear friend of mine, and a a man that I consider a great gospel preacher who is doing a wonderful work uh, just outside of um, Austin, Texas, in the community of Dripping Springs that they just call Drip, because uh, well, you know we Southerners like to say things slow, and it just takes too long to say Dripping Springs, so. You just say DRIP and you're done with it, right? Amen? Okay, Jacob Rutledge is the minister for the Dripping Springs Church of Christ. He and his wife, Jessica, have three children, Natalie, Easton, and Lincoln. He holds the Master of Ministry from Amridge University. His uh, series yesterday and today is about the church and the world, and uh, there is uh, hardly a subject more important than that. And the things that he has been saying, and I know that he's going to say in the three lessons that we get to hear from him today, that we're privileged to be able to hear from him today, I know that the things he's going to say are going to be useful and be very, very relevant. Uh, We had the privilege last night of taking him to his first experience of, you know, Japanese hibachi. And uh, so I'm sorry about your eyebrows. But uh, uh, Keisha did get uh, a a series of when when they, of course, uh, flamed up the grill. He was real close, and it was an especially big fire. So I am surprised to see you have eyebrows today, but I'm glad that you do. So good. All right, I won't take any more of your time. Brother Jacob, come talk to us. Well,
0: grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is uh, Incredible worship time together, incredible singing. I know that Josh has bragged about the singing here and, and Brother Rooster, wonderful song. You know, when I was talking to you yesterday, I had no idea that that volume could, could come out of you. Is that why your nickname's Rooster? Just just burst out all of a sudden, you know, right in the morning time. That's the way to wake up the children of God. Um, excellent song leading. It was a wonderful experience yesterday for me to be able to um, spend time with uh, Joshua and uh, Keisha and um, uh, Michael and his wife, and uh, my mind is missing. What is it? Yeah, Dana. And we went to the hibachi grill, and... And uh, that was a wonderful experience. I'm still full, by the way, uh, and um, just wonderful fellowship. I'm thankful for the legacy of faith that is here at this congregation and the wonderful works that you've done for so long. It was a hot summer evening in the July of 1924. It was the Paris Olympic Games. It was the 400-meter And the starting crack of the gun filled the Olympic Stadium. And as the runners began to to race and to compete, there was one man who came to the front. And you would notice him pretty easily. Because his running style was so wildly different from all of the other runners. His arms were flailing at his side. His head was thrown up to the sky as if he was looking to the heavens. He was a part of the British Olympic team. He was Scotland's fastest sprinter. And he would go on to win the gold in the 400 meter that day. Thank you, sir. His name was Eric Little. But the story of Eric's life and of this particular race was far bigger than just this moment. Because just a few days earlier, Eric had found out that the race that he had trained for, the 100 meter, was going to be scheduled on a Sunday. And because of his strong Christian convictions that he had and the belief that he had that Christians should not work on Sundays, he refused to run in the 100 meter. And he was given the 400 meter as an option to run, but he had not plan to run in the 400 meter. He hadn't even trained for that. Now, he was highly favored to win the 100 meter. Well known, and it was kind of assumed that he was going to win. He was not favored at all to win the 400 meter. And of course, he went on to win gold. Now, when Little made this decision, it was met with an immense amount of pressure from the British Olympic Committee and from his own fellow citizens who said that he was lacking in patriotism because of the decision that he had made. Now, many of you might be familiar with little story that is told in the film, Chariots of Fire. And if you haven't seen Chariots of Fire, then you need to repent and watch it because it's a great, great movie. Um, But his story is told within Chariots of Fire, and he has kind of become this uh, man of inspiration, this character that... Uh, athletes and Christians alike have looked to as someone to pattern their lives after. They've given them inspiration and motivation whenever they're facing challenges and whenever they're facing pressure from the powers that be. But what most people don't know is that the tale that is told in Chariots of Fire was actually not Little's greatest accomplishment, at least not in my estimation. Because after the Olympic Games, Little went on to be a teacher and a missionary in China where he actually had grown up. His parents had worked as missionaries there as well. He went on to work there as a missionary and as a teacher, teaching young Chinese children about science as well as the gospel. And he endeared himself to the Chinese people through his selfless commitment to their people and to their community. But while Little was there, the Japanese invaded during World War II. And prior to them invading... Little sent his family, his wife, and their two daughters to Canada while he remained behind to serve the Chinese people. He was taken captive, and he was a captive, a prisoner within a Japanese internment camp. But during that time, the records show, and those who were fellow prisoners with him talked about the character and the service that Little continued to have towards the Chinese people. But while he was there, he developed a brain tumor, and he died in that Japanese internment camp. And it was said that his final words, and his final words were recorded by one of the Chinese that he had so faithfully served for so many years, that his final words before he took his last breath was, It's all surrender. It's all surrender. Now, interestingly enough, the location of that Japanese internment camp is now today a Chinese middle school, where young Chinese children are taught about Little's legacy, and they have a memorial there for him. He is still very much beloved. In fact, the Chinese claim that he was the first uh, Chinese citizen to win gold. In the Olympics, uh, because he technically was a Chinese citizen, even though he was he ran for Scotland and for, for Great Britain, but in both of these instances, and in the instances instance within the Olympics and within this uh, issue uh, right before his death, Little's faith in Jesus Christ was instrumental in him overcoming insurmountable odds and oppressive forces through faith. He stood up to powerful governmental forces. He came out on the other side of that, not as a victim, but as a victor. Through faith, he endured indescribable suffering with immense joy and endurance. And I tell that story this morning because I think within his life, we grasp a small picture of what John means when he says in 1 John chapter 5, in verse 4 and 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? But here's the question for us this morning. Is this faith, this overcoming faith, this victorious faith, the faith that Rooster helped lead us in singing about earlier of rising up and taking victory... Is that the faith of the church today? It appears to me that oftentimes some Christians feel overcome by the world rather than overcoming the world. They see what's going on in the world and they think, what's the point? Why even try we sacrifice our communities to Satan, believing that he has the upper hand and the gospel is impotent to face such systemic wickedness. But John thought otherwise. He said in 1 John two thirteen and 14, little children, you are of God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, you are from God and overcome Him, for He who is greater than He who is in the world. That was the verse I was saying a moment ago. But maybe the reason that we struggle with overcoming the world is because we ourselves have been overcome once again and we don't want to challenge the status quo. Because if we challenge the status quo, if we challenge the world, then that means it's going to upset my desires. It means I'm going to be made uncomfortable. It means I'm going to have to change. In other words, as John said, and we looked at this yesterday, we have fallen back in love with the world. Our hopes, our goals, our fears, our focus, our time, our desires are so consumed by this natural life that we have little energy or desire to conquer the world around us. Every generation of the church is faced with new challenges and temptations. And our present time, our present generation, I'm convinced, has to recapture the power and the confidence of a victorious faith in relationship to the world. A faith that overcomes rather than a faith that is overcome. I believe that's one of our great challenges in the church today. And so we're going to, this morning, continue this series that we have titled, The Church and the World. And we're going to see how faith is a victory. What I want us to first notice this morning is that as the church, we can only overcome through Christ alone. Now that needs to be said from the beginning, I think. We need to remember that because sometimes we think that the victory that we're trying to accomplish, this great task that we're called to, is by our own efforts or by our own talents. And we think, well, I can't, I'm not that smart, I'm not that clever. No, you're not, but neither am I. But Christ is, and Christ is sufficient. And this is why he comes to the disciples in John 15 and verse 5, and he says, you can do nothing without me. You can't do anything without me. But the opposite of that is true as well. If I can do nothing without Christ, that means I can do anything with Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4 and verse 13 anyways. Now, when we are talking about taking on the world, we need to understand the enemy. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. 1 John 5 and verse 19, there John says that the whole world lies under the power or the sway of the wicked one. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Think about that for a moment, brethren. The enemy that we are fighting is a cosmic evil, is a spiritual force of darkness. Now, when you think about that, again, that is pretty daunting. And we need to recognize that the enemy far extends beyond someone I might have an issue with or someone I might have a problem with. Behind all of the brokenness and all the wickedness in the world is this cosmic overshadowing of an unestimable evil. And therefore, the Bible says the only way you're going to win is through Christ is by the power of the cross that we were singing about earlier. In fact, our ability to overcome the world is in many ways simply trusting in the faithfulness of the one who has already overcome the world. Notice what Jesus says in John 16 and verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. That's something, by the way, that the church needs to remember that's promised by Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. John is telling us in his gospel, again, that my overcoming the world isn't based on my own cleverness, my own strength, my own ingenuity, my own political influence, but it is in faith. By faith, he said in 1 John 5 and verse 4, faith that overcomes through the one, in the one, who has already overcome. Now that's odd. Because when I look at Jesus at face value, being honest, If you were an outsider looking at Jesus... ...and you weren't really a believer... ...you're just looking at the story of Jesus... ...he doesn't appear to have overcome the world. At least initially. He seems... ...it seems as if he was overcome by the world. He was crucified. Right? He he was given a criminal's death. That looks like to me, initially... ...that he was overcome by the world. And even from the standpoint of success which is often how we define overcoming the world, by the way, in our secular culture. Have you really overcome the world if you're not successful? And from that standpoint, Jesus didn't overcome the world. He he wasn't married. He He didn't have kids. He had no successful financial investments. He wrote no books. He led no military campaigns. Never won political office. Doesn't appear to be much of a victor. And yet... On the very eve of his crucifixion, before he was crucified, by the way, and before he was resurrected, by the way, he says, did you notice the tense in the sentence? I have overcome the world. Not I will overcome the world. Did you catch that? I have overcome the world. That's before he's crucified. That's before he's resurrected. That's before he is ascended. And he already says it's a done deal. I have already... Now, we often like to speak in the future tense as Christians. We will overcome the world, right? Future. You know, and and sometimes what we mean by that is, you know, we're just going to grin and bear it. And when Jesus comes and burns everything up, we'll be better. You know, we will overcome. But that is not how Jesus speaks. And that's not how John speaks in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. He says, we have overcome through Christ. I'm already a victor. Through Christ this morning, you, if you're a Christian, you are already a victor. It is a done deal, period. And, when, and then what's interesting is that when you walk through the Gospel of John, connecting the letters of John the Gospel of John... When you walk through the gospel, John, after chapter 16, you get into chapter 17. The high priestly prayer of Jesus is sometimes called. And when you walk through that chapter, Jesus shows how he has overcome the world prior to even his crucifixion, resurrection and ascension. How is that? There's three ways that he had overcome the world at this point. Number one, he had accomplished God's work. And you look in John chapter 17 and verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He he had accomplished the mission that God had given him to do, and therefore he had overcome the world. Number two, he had maintained his joy. If you look in John 17 and verse 13, he says, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy. Notice that. My joy, we're going to come back to that, fulfilled in themselves. So he accomplished God's work. He maintained his joy, and he also had fought sin and Satan. If you look in John 17, 14, and 15, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Notice this, just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, as he had been kept From the evil one. And so in Jesus, we see how through faith, the pattern of how faith, even in the present moment, overcomes the world. Number one, we accomplish the work that God has called us to do. Number two, we maintain our joy even in a world that wants to bring us down into despair and hope. And number three, we fight sin and Satan every single day. And so let's look at each of those points briefly together for a moment that comes out to a victorious faith. A victorious faith accomplishes God's work. Now, from an early age, Jesus was... We don't know at what point He became aware of His responsibilities uh, to the Father. But we know that at a very young age, the age of 12, Luke tells us in Luke 2 that he was already aware of his responsibilities. He tells Mary and Joseph, remember, whenever they find him in the temple, he says, don't you know I should be about my father's what? Business. I think that's the King James Version. My my father's purpose or work. I, I, I am to be about my father's work. He's already aware of that. From Luke 2 and Mark 1 and verse 38, we see that his work was teaching. And Mark 1 in verse 38, we see he says, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So central to one of the works that Jesus was given was his teaching. In, Luke, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Luke tells us that Jesus went about doing good. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Telling people about God... And helping those who were harassed and hurt by Satan was at the core mission of what Jesus was about. I love that language, by the way. He was healing all those who were oppressed by Satan. And therefore, because he had accomplished the work that God had sent him to do, he could say in John 19 and verse 30, it is finished. What is finished? The mission he gave me. The work he gave me to do. The purpose of his life was fulfilled. Jesus did not give way to distractions. He refused to live for self. And he submitted himself completely to the work of the Father who had called him to it. What is the work of your life? I mean, what is the real purpose behind who you are and what you do? Where do you spend your money, your time, your thoughts, and your desires? Is your life defined by sharing God with others and helping people who are hurt and harassed by Satan and sin? Do we think of our life in that way? I'm not saying everybody's got to be a preacher, not everybody's going to be a preacher, not everybody's even going to be a song leader. But each and every single one of you this morning has been given gifts and opportunities and talents and responsibilities that Christ expects you to allow Him to reign in. His throne must be on your heart and in your life. And every work that you are called to, every work that you do, every activity is for His glory. No matter what it is. And are you using that influence? That is, by the way, how God pushes back the influence of Satan and darkness and the powers of sin. And that doesn't even necessarily mean that every person you meet or influence, you're going to convert to the church. That'd be great. That'd be wonderful. But you know what? You can help people who might not ever become Christians. You can still help mitigate the damage that sin has on their life. Whenever you give someone counseling about their marriage that helps them to live a marriage that's more aligned with God and his purposes. Now, we would love for them to become Christians. That's our number one goal. But if you keep that marriage together, do you know what you're doing? You are fighting off Satan by the truth of God. And you are planting a flag in that home, and you're saying, you don't belong here. This is God's territory. Are you accomplishing the work that God has called you? You might be thinking, listen, again, I'm too busy. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a preacher. Maybe not, but you know what you are? If you are a Christian, you are a priest. And you know what a priest is called to do. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may Proclaim. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You as a priest are meant to be a bridge between this world and the next one. You are meant to be the avenue by which people can come to know the mercies and the goodness of God. You are God's means of proclaiming his mercy to the world. Whenever people see you and they see your marriage and they say, man, what a great marriage. What a great family. You say, that's not because of me. That's because of Jesus Christ. My wife and I, I can guarantee you we would not be here if it wasn't for him. They see your business. They see the type of business that you run. They see the type of man that you are and you manage it. And they said, man, you're such a great manager, man. I wouldn't be that type of manager if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. They see how you are as a student and they see how diligent you are in your studies and how devoted you are. And they say, man, I wish I had the diligence that you had. I wish I had the fortitude, the patience and the study skills. And you say, I wouldn't be that if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. You proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because when you're in the light of God, Every area of your life is illuminated by His mercy and His goodness and His love. A faith that overcomes the world... ...refuses to be so bogged down by the business of present life... ...that it can't accomplish God's work. If all we do in life is seek material security... ...enjoy lavish vacations, become accomplished academically and yet we fail to do the work of God in telling people about God and helping people who are harassed and hurt by sin and Satan, if all we are focused on and all the church is focused on is this life, then your faith has been overcome. It is not an overcoming faith. In John 6 and verse 27, Jesus said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. Are we as a church accomplishing God's work? Are we collectively seeking to reach the lost in the world? Are we using the influence and opportunities and responsibilities that God has given us to share God with others and to help those who are harassed and hurting from sin and Satan? Number two, a faith that overcomes not only accomplishes God's work, but it maintains its joy. It maintains its joy. Now, I talked to a few of you yesterday about this after one of the lessons, but if you want your faith to be overcome by uh, despair and fear and pessimism, then just turn on the news for about 20 minutes. (laughs) You know, it can get pretty discouraging pretty fast. Our world is filled with darkness and death and sin. And not only that, but it seems increasingly promoted, defended, solidified within legislation. How can a Christian possibly hope hope to overcome such an oppressive force of wickedness? Truly overcome, not just in the future, but right now. One of the ways is by maintaining your joy in Christ despite outside circumstances. A joyful faith that says... I know I'm not I'm not idealistic I'm not a, I know things are bad, but ultimately I know that I have something better. That is what Jesus did. Notice what he said in John seventeen twenty two and uh, twenty three or verse thirteen, no it is uh, the previous verse actually sorry. But now I'm coming to you these things I speak in the world that they notice this they may have my joy fulfilled within themselves Notice he says my joy fulfilled in them Now he says in John 16 and verse 24 until now you have asked nothing in my name asking and you will receive that your joy may be full Does Jesus want you to be full of joy Yes he does That's what he says right here, isn't it? I want their joy to be full, filled to the brim. So sometimes we create this false dichotomy between happiness and holiness, right? We say God wants you to be holy. He doesn't want you to be happy. Now, if we're talking about being happy in sin, and if we're talking about using these self-pleasuring modes of of sinfulness as a means of trying to gain happiness apart from the will of God, absolutely. Absolutely. But the message of Scripture is that God wants me to be happy in holiness. He wants me to be happy in Christ. He said, I want you to be full of joy. Whose joy, though? Not just my joy. Christ's joy in me. Jesus' joy is a gift to believers. He says, I'm going to put my joy in their hearts by my Spirit. That is why the fruit of the Spirit is love. Number two is what? Joy. Joy. If the Spirit of God is in me by the power of Christ, that means there's going to be joy produced in my life. Because of what Jesus is not again. Now, you might be thinking, man, I, listen, I'm looking at my life. And there isn't much to be happy about. I'm not very successful. I, have, I don't have a lot of money in the bank. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not even married. Maybe I don't have kids. I, there's, there's things that I want to accomplish in life. And, And listen, I think, I hope that those things get accomplished in your life and you use them for the glory of God. But let me tell you something. If you're a Christian and Christ is in your life, then you can have joy now through Him. But you've got to surrender. You've got to give it over. You've got to make Him your joy. What are you allowing to dictate your rejoicing? Jesus is the great satisfaction of our hearts. I truly believe that. I mean, you, 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 young people, if there's young people in here, listen, you, you can try all the things in this life. You, you can accomplish great things. And I hope that you do. You can gain knowledge. You can try every pleasure in life. And I guarantee you, it will never give you the satisfaction that Jesus Christ does. It just won't. Your heart's made for more. It's made for Him. So if a faith truly wants to overcome in this life right now, in this moment, want to be a victorious faith, I have to fight for my joy. Now, let me tell you, you're going to have to fight for it. We just sang a lot of you know, battle hymns, spiritual battle hymns, which were great. You know, we talk about fighting, the good fight of faith. What does that mean? One of it is mean you're going to have to fight for your joy in Christ. Satan's not going to give it to you. There's going to be days where you're going to have discouragements, where you're going to have to really struggle to place your heart and your mind upon the cross and the resurrection and the living hope that you're given in Jesus. But I'm telling you, it's there. It's there. And He will give it to you if you ask and you receive and you submit. But number three, a faith that overcomes not only accomplishes God's work and maintains his joy, but it fights sin and Satan. Do you know immediately following the baptism of Jesus, Jesus was faced with temptation? Do you ever catch that? Matthew 3, he's baptized. Matthew 4, he's already in the struggle against sin and Satan. And, uh, and I, I'm sure Josh has seen this as well. I'm sure the elders have seen this as well. I see that happening with new Christians all the time. So I think that what Jesus is depicting here is actually what happens in our life of faith. I tell people after they're baptized, I said, the next week's going to be pretty rough for you. I'm happy for you, and you have the new hope, and you have the Spirit of God, but I'm telling you this next week, you're going to face some struggles. And almost every time to a T, they do, because Satan doesn't like that he's lost ground. And so he's going to do everything he can to test. They're claiming now, I'm a child of God. And now Satan's going to say, let's put that to the test. And that's exactly what Satan does with Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descends and it said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Satan says, well, let's just test that then. Are you really who you claim to be? You remember what his questions are? If you are the Son of God, then do this. And so temptations... And testings that we go through in many ways are simply a reflection of the temptations and the testing that Jesus Himself went through. And the question that we are faced with, and this is what John is talking about in 1 John, whenever we're faced with sin and temptation, the question is are we who we are claiming to be? Really? Are we who we are claiming to be? Are you going to be a child of God? Are you going to be a child of Satan? Which one are you going to pick? Are you going to overcome sin by the power of Jesus or are are you going to be overcome by sin because you didn't depend on Jesus? That's the struggle. Repeatedly, the Bible emphasizes that the Christian must fight to maintain our purity in a world that wants to corrupt the innocence that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross. Notice a few verses, James 1 and verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and have peace. 2 Peter 2, 19 and 20 They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, you must, by the power and the grace of Christ, fight sin in your own heart first and fight sin and temptation in the world around you. By the truth of Jesus, through faith and devotion to him, we are free. You are a free person by the power of Christ and the cross. You have been freed from the stain and the defilement of sin. But do not deceive yourself into thinking that you can't fall back into a life of sin. Because let me tell you something. Satan loves returning customers. And let me tell you this morning if you aren't fighting sin, if you aren't fleeing from sin, then you are forfeiting to it. If not every day you're not fighting and fleeing, and you're just constantly giving in, you're never trying, you're never offering up yourself for surrender, you're eventually going to wave the white flag and just give it up. It's a fight by the power of Christ. You've got to fight. You've got to flee. By the grace of God, you can overcome. Now, we all recognize, and this is what John has a lot to say about, and we were talking about this last week. How do we fight? And I wish we had more time to talk about this this morning. But one of the ways that we fight, and you see this in 1 John 1, 7 through 9, is we come to Christ and we confess our faults to Him. You know that's one of the ways that we fight sin? That's really, if you look through 1 John, that's what walking in the light really means, is there's two people. There's the person who walks in the light, and there's the person who walks in the darkness. The person who walks in the light is open and transparent about who they are before God. John says, if you say you don't sin, then you make God a liar. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm not going to make God a liar. So I'm going to freely and openly say, I am a sinner. I'm a redeemed sinner, but I sin. Right, So I'm open with God about that, and I fall upon the grace and the mercy of God at the cross of Christ every single day. The person who walks in darkness says, I don't need it. I don't need Jesus. I've got this. I'm good. And so whenever I have a, com- a person come to me and say, "I just I've been really struggling, and I've been praying to God, and I've been asking for His forgiveness, and I've been confessing to Him, but I feel like I still struggle with sin, and I say, well, good, that means you're walking in the light. That means you're walking in the light. That means you're submitting and you're recognizing your need for Jesus Christ. That's fighting. Fighting means not by our own efforts. It means falling down at the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus, only through you, only by you. And this, then, is how we possess a faith that overcomes the world. Through accomplishing the work that God has called us to, maintaining our joy, fighting sin and Satan. And we've got to remember what was said by Little so long ago. It's all surrender. It's all surrender. There are are sins in your heart this morning that you can't let go of. The Hebrews writer says they cling so closely They're so personal to you. They're so intimately connected to your past, to your own desires, to your own hopes and wishes. The Hebrews says they cling so closely. But Christ says, if you'll surrender them to me, I will give you what you're looking for. I will give you the victory. I will give you the hope. And through Jesus, because of Jesus, I am not a victim, I am a victor. Hebrews 11, verses 33 and 34. Look at what it taught. I love this. We're talking about these people of faith who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, but put foreign armies to flight. Does that sound like cowards to you? Does that sound like... we? He said, through faith, through faith, through Jesus, I will not be overcome. I will overcome. Refuse surrender. Refuse apathy. Refuse to be overcome by despair. Fight for your soul. Fight for the soul of your neighbor. Fight for the soul of your family. Refuse to use the tactics of Satan and the world. Meet error with truth. Meet bitterness with joy. Meet despair with hope. Meet love with hate. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 20, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't you dare forfeit your faith to the enemy when Christ has already promised you victory. Overcome your apathy and your disinterest in heavenly things. Overcome your joyless, hopeless, pessimistic existence. Overcome your sinful, wicked habits. Call out to God for a new heart, Christian. Receive Christ in baptism by faith, non-Christian, because it is only faith that is the victory. Why don't you come to Christ this morning. Find victory in Him and Him alone. Whatever you need is as we stand and as we sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening and we hope you have a blessed day.